To support our work at the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show, and you'll get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up at Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hi, I'm Mortada. And I'm Izzy. And this is the Izzy and Mortada Picture Show. Welcome to this new episode of the podcast. This week we have a fantastic guest with us today. Um, to continue celebrating Pride, this will be our third um, episode in June, but our first really episode uh, where we talk about Pride and about queer things. And to help us... Um, uh, this episode, we've invited author Manuel Betancourt, um, the writer of the new book, The Male Gaze, on hunks, heartthropes, and what pop culture taught me about desiring men. I love that title. Hi, Manuel. Welcome. Hi. Thank you both for having me. You're welcome. We're so excited to have you. Um, so Manuel and I um, are friends, just, you know, uh, so that everybody knows who's listening. And actually, <laughs> when you lived in New York a few years ago, you are uh, Californian now. But when you were in New York, we were part of a book club. And you, I think you're the first of our book club members to publish a book. So congratulations. Thank you. Yes, I have very, very fond memories of all of our uh, book club discussions where we read a bunch of queer, I think only exclusively mostly queer queer books yeah it was a bunch of queer men reading queer books um and so I'm not surprised that then you wrote this book (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I want to start by asking you about the title so it's not the male gaze it's not the male comma gazed but the male gaze so can you tell us why what's why that title yeah so I um you know the book is part memoir, but mostly cultural criticism, which is what I do. It's my bread and butter. I've been a film critic. I'm an academic. Um, And I really wanted to write a book about the pop culture that shaped me. And I realized that most of the pop culture that shaped me and that I wanted to write about had to do with men and had to do with me asking myself, you know, the eternal queer question, which is, do I want him or do I want to just be him? Uh, and so we, I went through a bunch of different titles in, in a way of capturing what I wanted. And I landed on the male gazed this like past tense, cause I liked the double entendre. So I wanted to look at the male who has been gazed and the male who gazed, right? So we would be looking at the two things, the male who's mm. looking and the men who's being looked at. Uh, and of course, because I'm an academic and I have Laura Mulvey's, you know, seminal essay on visual pleasure, um, in my mind, I wanted to sort of riff on this idea. When we think of the male gaze, we tend to think of women. We tend to think of sort of this very patriarchal sort of idea of like women always being offered up for uh, immense pleasure. And of course, uh, mm-hmm. us queer boys and queer folks have a very different kind of gaze. And um, sort of I wanted to explore what that may be. So that's that's a little bit where, where, where the title, the title's trying to cram all of that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I, I, I want to hone in a little bit more on that question. Like, do I want him or do I want to be him? Because I think every queer person has experienced that in one form or another. And it's such a very fascinating and scary thing because the answer can really be both in a way that's like very different from a lot of heterosexual relationships. Um, and, you know, this is how we get people dating people they look exactly like. <laughs> Boyfriend twins. Um, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so like talk us through that question a bit and like how it guided your thoughts for this book. Yeah. So it, it took a while to arrive at that question and to realize that that, oh, that this was the central sort of guiding question. And that it is a question that I constantly ask myself as a kid and as a teenager, even now and sort of in my late thirties and it often changes, right? And sometimes I just want to be him and sometimes I want to be with him and sometimes it's both. And then I have that like moment of like, am I just a raging narcissist? Is this, am I just like super vain? And then what does that say about me? What does it say about the culture? What does it say about how I, how I perceive myself and how I want others to perceive me. And so it, rather than doing a sort of a therapeutic, cathartic kind of uh, book, I, I wanted to anchor it in sort of these characters. So for example, there's an entire chapter on uh, one of our films and Antonio Banderas, because I he was one of those first few uh, filmmakers and auteur, uh, auteur muses where I was like, oh, here's a different kind of gaze. And Almodovar really wants us to have that kind of um, sort of vexing, question to be asked like do I want to be Antonio or do I want Antonio and what is it about Antonio's aggression and his sort of manliness and machismo that he's luring us into wanting and wanting to be when obviously all of his characters in these films well in this in his early part of his career were so aggressive and so violent but you were so drawn in because you just really mm -hmm. wanted to feel the warmth of his his sexiness, um, which Hollywood has never been able to sort of figure out what to do. Um, and I think it's a very generative question. I think it's it, it's a question that it's site-specific. It'll change from people to people. I think it tells us a lot about what cultural values, right? So certain men in certain different cultures are valued very differently. Um, I was in Colombia a few weeks back and uh, every single straight man was wearing a dangly earring. And it was very confusing to me because in Los <laughs> Angeles, if you were wearing a dangly earring, you were telling other people something about your sexuality and it is not that you are straight. Um, <laughs> and, and so I'd like to think about that too, about like how in different cultures, masculinity is, is sort of fashioned quite literally very differently. And so mm. that question of who I want to be when I'm consuming from this sort of outsider perspective can actually be very um shaping in how I see myself as a man, as a gay man, as a queer man, as a Colombian queer man in Los Angeles or previously in New York or in Bogota. So it's a question that I'm probably going to be continuing asking myself for the rest of my life. And uh, I won't have a clear answer anytime soon. Yeah. Maybe there'll be a sequel to the male yeah. gaze. <laughs> <laughs> two male, oh. two gays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Almodovar and I will definitely get back to him, but maybe a little bit later. Um, but I wanted to ask you first, um, you're a culture critic. This is also a memoir. Um, and as a critic myself, I sort of struggle and ultimately mostly re refuse to insert myself into my writing, um, especially, you know, when I'm writing, when I'm, you know, critiquing a piece of culture. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, can you talk about how you found that voice um, and how you developed it? Because it's very clear in this book. It's it's those two things together in almost every page. Yeah, I... I'm going to continue saying that I became a begrudging memoirist because uh, I, I come from an academic 
background. Um, I got my doctorate in in literatures a lot of years ago now. Um, and so I was very much trained in this idea that you, you know the critic is not there, right? That you you need to be um, the critique is there, but the I you would never utter the I. You would never insert yourself. Personal anecdotes are sort of a big no no. And so, and for the most part, and most of the work that I do as a film critic, you know, I, you know, I write for Variety for the EV Club, and I'm I'm rarely inserting myself. I'm I'm always um, sort of having to speak in that sort of impersonal voice. And so, for this book, it was a little bit hard. Originally, the way that I conceived it was very much a cultural criticism book. I was like, oh, I want to write about masculinity, about queerness, about desire, and I'm going to write about this, and I'm going to write about that. And I found myself thinking that I needed a through line and that I Ooh. needed sort of a hook. Um, I'm not a big film critic name yet or ever. I don't aspire, like, right. It's not someone, no one's <laughs> rushing to sort of re- see what Manuel is going to um, read. And I was like, well, if we do a little bit of memoir. So when I first drafted the proposal, I was thinking that in like in the introduction, I would like insert myself and give you a sense of why I had chosen the pieces I had chosen. And they were Ooh. like personal to me. And then it was my agent who was like, this is great. We need a little bit more. I want you to like really tease that out. And it was, I was very uncomfortable by it. Cause I was just like, I, this is, this book is not about me. And then we worked on it. And then my editor who then bought the book was like, this is great. We just need a little bit more personal stuff. So the, the two of them like really teased it out mm-hmm. and really convinced me. And I think for, for the better that like the way to think about this was that I was taking you on a journey and that mm-hmm. I was really showing you so that you would could see because this was about how pop culture shapes us, that if I could give you my personal, these memoristic anecdotes uh, and I could thread them through, then, then I could open up these larger conversations. And this is what happens in every chapter is like they begin, I begin with like an anecdote of like when I was a little kid and I saw Sleeping Beauty. And then that turns into this like larger conversation about, um, you know, queer codedness in in Disney, but also we go to talk about Gore Vidal and Meyer Brickenridge. And then we go to all these different places and then we sort of sometimes then come back. So it was a little bit of a struggle because I'm mm. I'm a very private person and I'm, I'm not... <laughs> self-disclosure is not really that by my strong suit um but when i realized that it would be helpful to the to the structure of the book and to the tone of the book that i could that it could be more conversational and so when i started thinking about it that way i was like okay mm-hmm. okay and you know i don't spend a lot of time in those anecdotes they, they, they're very <laughs> brief i'm not a scene maker i'm not i'm not like and then that moment when the blue sky was coming like but i just <laughs> never i'm never i was never going to do that um <laughs> It's sort of the idea that like if I situate that if I helped you situate and you would understand where I was coming from, both geographically and culturally and historically and politically, then I could then take you on this like larger journey. Um, I'm glad to hear that it worked because <laughs> I was very oh my god, it very definitely worried because I mean the thing I read so many academic books for work, and those are just a slog to get through sometimes even though the points can feel really personal, the points that they're trying to make. Mm-hmm. And you just wish that you had someone speaking to you like a human being. <laughs> so I'm glad that that's the track that you chose to take here. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I mean, yeah, I agree. I definitely works. And the thing is, um, so what I'm hearing is that you said you kind of needed a little push. So do you yes. find yourself now a little bit more comfortable? Are you in your post writing since you wrote the book? Has it influenced your new writing and other avenues i think i mean this is one of the things about like 
having been in academia, where one of the reasons I left was precisely because I wanted to talk to regular people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then writing for various different publications and straddling the line of different audiences. I think as a freelancer now for so many years, I've gotten so used to have a chameleon-like voice. So if I'm writing for an academic audience, I can do that. And if I'm writing for the New York Times, I can do that. If I'm writing for Variety, I can do that, right? Like, um, and so I've I've always prided myself on having a very sort of elastic kind of voice that I could shape shift whenever I needed for different audiences. Cause you know, mm -hmm. the person who's reading variety is very different than the person who's picking up, you know, film quarterly, which is very different than the person who's reading Buzzfeed. And so in order to pitch for different editors, I had to show that I could do all these different things. So, um, for the book, I was like, oh, I'm going to create this voice and I'm going to hone that voice. And I've done it, but I, I, created it for the book and I don't think I've sort of taken it elsewhere um I'm working on another book and that book will sort of function sort of the mm -hmm. same way like using myself and then sort of having like these like broader conversations I think it's better suited to these longer projects because mm -hmm. I I think one of the things that one of the reasons that I wanted to write a book is that I have found my thinking to be getting sort of smaller because I was writing 800 word pieces and a thousand word pieces or a tweet and my thinking had gone very small and it's very hard to talk about yourself in such a like it, it it can be very limiting and it can be very uh constricting and you can flatten yourself and what i i what i liked about the book is that i could really then let myself breathe and i could give myself space to think about nuance and complexity and really uh allow that i and that personal experience to really to really shine through. So I don't, I haven't yet exported it somewhere else. Um, <laughs> but maybe, I don't know. Never say never. Yeah. Um, as a follow-up, um, and this is for both of you, Izzy, please chime in. Um, as a as a reader, which do you prefer? Like when you just want to know about this new TV show, I don't know, The Idol, which is on now or whatever. Maybe that's not a very good example, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever is new this week a book a tv show a movie which sort of which critics do you gravitate to which sort of writing do you gravitate towards the sort of like all-seeing god on top who's never in it or the person who's always about well this is how I felt about this which is a lot of what I would say new cultural writing is about yeah I mean I I have a particular distaste for that second that latter part of criticism I think because I think there's a difference of uh helping your reader understand where you're coming from and mm. then giving yourself license to say things just because of who you are and I think that's it's a fine line mm -hmm. and I think uh you, you have to calibrate it so for example when I think of um Justin Chang at the LA Times or someone like Richard Lawson at Vanity Fair or even you know if we have to go back and talk about someone like uh Roger Ebert I think they're great critics in that like you're always understanding where they're coming from and they can sometimes bring in themselves but it's always in the service of the criticism and it's always in the service of the film and not mm -hmm. of themselves and that's I think that's a fine line to thread um and so that's the kind of criticism that I really enjoy. Because to me, when I read criticism, what I want to be reading about is the film. I want to be reading about the book. I really mm -hmm. want to be, I want you to be close reading. I want you to be telling me about structure. I want you to be telling me about, you know, cinematography and framing and directorial choices and actressing. Um, when you're making it about yourself and your reactions and when that is, when I'm learning more about you than I'm learning about the film, oh, mm -hmm. um, I I get a little bit 
for because I think it's that's harder to do. Um, and so the bar, so for me, the bar is just a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't want to. I, I don't particularly enjoy the sort of word from God kind of criticism because I think there's a <laughs> there's a different kind of erasure there to to yeah. think that like, oh, you have that somehow you've you're impersonal when I was like obviously you're gonna react to it differently where where you're from where you grew up what you've been mm-hmm. watching um are you immersed in that kind of genre are you immersed in the kind of cinema do you know the director do you know the film do you know the lineage so I think there's a I think there's also different ways in which you can bring in yourself without necessarily making it about yourself right so you can bring yeah. your expertise and the fact that you know for example the romantic comedy genre like the back of your hand that can come through in your writing without mm-hmm. necessarily sort of be- becoming sort of this like diary sort of memoristic entry about how you really enjoyed it because. Because you related to it this <laughs> in this particular way. Because they did what I would have done and therefore <laughs> I felt really seen. Um, I keep I keep struggling yeah. with that kind of criticism lately. Like I feel really seen. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it kind of like drifts into solipsism really quickly where um, it doesn't really feel considered, I guess, you know, I think like, I think the, I'm glad that you mentioned Justin Chang because I love how he, um, can kind of insert just even a sentence that says like what his personal experience is, or when he, uh, will do an article that isn't straight up criticism, but just kind of like responding to something that people are talking about in a way that feels very personal to him. I love that article that he wrote about, um, Everything everywhere Everything all at once after yeah. it. That's a great article. Won a ton of Oscars. And he was sort of like, I don't, I'm not really connecting with this. And he's just kind of grappling with it. And I thought that was so um fascinating, um, but also very in tune with what's happening in the industry and who audiences are and what audiences want. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I love that from him. Yeah. yeah. And it and it and I think it's about that connection with the reader. I think that solicism mm-hmm. is a is a great note because it's like ultimately what you want to be doing is connecting with the reader not sort of connecting with yourself and I think I mean it's hard and I think it's yeah. sort of, um I can see why as a genre that kind of criticism has been sort of been elevated lately um but because you can if you do it well it can work really really well but it's mm-hmm. not so often it's just not um but yeah yeah I agree and I think sometimes like the the pieces that I wrote that I got the most response for are ones that I inserted myself in, but only in a way to just ex- to the point that you were making to explain a little bit more about what that experience is without actually saying this is my experience because I don't think right. I um I I try not to do that at all. But somehow people do find the truth, and then that's the the part that or the article that will get you the most response, um, which is not always easy. Like you, if you're just, I don't know, um, reviewing the latest film festival movie, there there might not be an opportunity to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think this might be like a good transition to think a little bit about what people talk about when they talk about representation and how mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think that can fall a little bit short. Um, you talk a lot about, or you wrote about having to read against the grain. Um, and re- finding things that you don't necessarily relate to personally, but nevertheless can connect to because there's just kind of a commonality in the, in the human experience. Um, so, I mean, how does that relate to how you see representation being talked about today? Do you find it very literal? Um, 
Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I do find it very little and very restricting, right? One of the things that I talk about in the book is how I don't particularly enjoy or don't find very generative or productive to think of the screen as a mirror. Um, I think that when we think of the screen as a mirror, I think we're limiting ourselves in our imagination and also we're limiting the kinds of things filmmakers and actors and artists, craftspeople um, can do. So I've, one of the things that I've been done, I've been doing through my writing and my reading and my thinking for the past few years is like, what would it mean to think of it, the screen, not as a mirror or not even as a window, but as sort of as a prism or as a disco ball, I say, right? Like all these like different kinds of that we're refracting our experience or that can be reflected back at us in this sort of like funhouse kind of style. Um, Cause that is often how I, what I was doing while I was growing up. I was like, I, I found kinship indifference. Um, so that I could see myself in Maleficent. Uh, <laughs> and it, it didn't mean that I wanted to be her and be horned and be sort of this, I mean, it would be fantastic to have that kind of like fabulous outfit and minions <laughs> and do your bidding and, you know, tie up a prince. Um, but that I, but there were like bits and pieces, which I think is what happens when we think of self-fashioning in terms of pop culture. There are bits and pieces that we take from here, from there, which is what we do in real life. Uh, and so this this push to find this photo negative of myself on the screen that I could somehow, if if just the right director would show me a queer Colombian immigrant who's a film critic on screen, then I would feel seen. And then that would give me some semblance of, I don't know, like um, Raquel Gates who writes her um, um, film quarterly and a bunch of other places. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, she was, um, I think it was a tweet of hers. She was talking about how when people talk about representation, they're thinking about resemblance, not really representation. And I think oh. I, that, that to me felt like so, I was like, oh my God, mind blown. Because I think that is what people are looking for. They're not looking to be represented. They're looking for like that kind of resemblance so that it, it just looks like me. And to me, that feels like that should be the bar, not the goal and not the horizon, which I think mm -hmm. is a lot of people think like, well, we, we, we have representation. And, you know, when we're sitting here doing Pride Month, um, we have a lot of representation and I don't think that sometimes um, translates into other things like uh, not worrying about our lives, not worrying about our livelihood and not worrying mm -hmm. about our um, um, safety. Uh, and so the, the represent representation as a goal has always been, I've always had a very vexed relationship with it because I understand the need for it. And I understand the need to, when you need to politically um, navigate the world, visibility and representation can be helpful because uh, when you're visible, then you can be um, sort of legible, mm -hmm. uh, but you can also be a target. So I, to me, the, the more interesting conversations are like where representation is either breaking down or it's moving against the grain. Because um, I think I would want people to be more imaginative in their thinking so that we could, we should aspire for something more than just who we are. Because uh, I think cinema is not really meant to be... Um, just telegraphing or just, you know, transcribing our lives. I think that there's, there's a lot of more possibility there. Hopefully. Do you, I think. Do you also like, I feel like there's this thing that also happens and I'm wondering if you notice this too, where when people actually see a very accurate mirror of themselves reflected back to them, then they don't like it. Like oh, it's, yeah. it's very cringe <laughs> and they think it's, you know, awkward and they're just like, Oh, I hate it. Blah, blah. Um, and they do you think that happens? And, if so, do you have any theories as to why? Oh, absolutely. Because I think 
And what I found, I mean, we can find so many um, examples of this uh, sort of within the queer community where, you know, we will cannibalize things that are mm -hmm. kind of close to home. Because I think often when we talk about representation, I think the the implicit thing that we're not voicing is positive representation, right? Like this idea that like, oh, you know, in order to advance politically, we need to be showing our best foot forward. And mm -hmm. when we're presented with an actual mirror image of who we are, that's going to come with some very thorny uh, things. But I think when we find something that's very much like us, we're more easily able to nitpick, be like, well, you know, I would not wear that t-shirt or I would not do that. And then it, it just becomes, um, and that's, that's why to me it becomes very superficial because it just becomes about the looking of the thing. Yeah. Um, but rather <laughs> than the, rather than the thing itself. Yeah. This is, this was an HBO looking pun. Um, yeah, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is. But, and I think that, that that those conversations to me can actually be much more fascinating. I mean, I again, as someone who lived through the looking discourse. Oh, my God. When yes. uh, yeah. a show that I love and still love, um, it was fascinating to see their reactions. And I think it it spoke to what it, the, the fact that it was creating so much cringe and so much like, oh, my God. And also how are they not doing this and why are they doing that? Like I, I'd rather have any, those kinds of conversations um, than whatever sanitized idea of like uh, a, a specific uh, romantic comedy that we might've gotten last year that I will not <laughs> speak about. It was <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> the, the movie itself was very much about visibility and it was very much about who is represented and about creating an LGBTQ museum. And it was set in New York. And oh, that one. Starred, oh, God, yes. Um, okay, yes, yes, okay. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's like a blind item. I blanked it from my mind. That's why. We're writing into Dimwa about. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Manuel, I wanted to ask you, like your book touches on, on so many topics, but one thing I wanted to talk about, I think to talk to you about is that, and um, especially during Pride, I think something taboo that a lot of us don't, gay men in particular, admit is that for some of us, the ultimate desire is for the straight man. Um, and that is something maybe the reason for that is that we grew up within a home, mostly, we, most of us grew up in homophobic societies where, you know, the male ideal is straight. And so that's what you want, or that's what you desire. Um, and there's not enough queer representation on screen. So you know, you see it, you know, I see it on my Twitter feed every day. They're drooling over Paul Mescal, Jason Momoa, even 86-year-old Harrison Ford. Um, <laughs> you know, not to be ageist, he still looks great. But, you know, I get it. I understand it. I think these men are attractive too. But I resent it a little bit too. And I see, you know, all my gay compatriots just drooling over these straight men. So do you think we can wean ourselves out of this and um, and how can we get there? Right. So what I'm hearing is you want more people thirsting over Ian McKellen. Why? I mean, for example, <laughs> for example yes. <laughs> Which we should all do more. Everyone go Google yeah. uh, Ian McKellen uh, young and I think we'll all get on board. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that I realized while I was writing the book. I sent it, one of the early drafts I sent to a friend of mine and he was like, oh my God, you've written an entire book about um, violent, aggressive straight men. And I was like, oh, yes, I guess that's 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 sort of the underbelly of this, this idea of like that question, do I want to be him or do I want him? But I, but if everything you're being shown 
are that men are supposed to be aggressive, men are not supposed to have feelings, men are not supposed to cry, that there's a way in which it can warp your sense of possibility, right? Mm-hmm. And so that you are often left with, I'd rather be lusting after someone unlike me, right? Who is straight, mm-hmm. um, uh, rather than a queer figure whose femininity or whose effeminacy or whose even just sexuality and the way they comport themselves can be troubling and can be kind mm-hmm. of um, thorny. And we could name endless uh, gay men and queer folk that that, that fit that bill. Um, one of the things that I wanted the book to do is to push us to go past that, to interrogate that. Because I think what one of the things that I one of the things you can say is I'm really attracted to this, but I don't want people to to do that uncritically. And this was the thing about this book is like, I'm a very self-aware kind of crippling, anxious kind of person. So that when I'm like, oh yeah, I really like a muscly guy. And then I'm like, okay, but why do I like a muscly guy? And what does that say about me? And what does it say about muscles? And what does it say about what it means? And what does it say about me? Do I want muscles? And if I have muscles and what is like, and then (laughs) this is how it, this is, that's my brain all the time, sort of on steroids. And so I wanted the book to sort of, begin there and think critically about that and then also try to imagine different ways which is why we end I wanted the last chapter to be about drag um, Mm. because I I, I wanted to see drag and sort of the commingling of masculinity and femininity to sort of be a kind of new template for queer masculinity for soft masculinity for tender masculinity and that that can be very attractive and that doesn't need to be couched in shame that doesn't need to be couched in sort of caveats but that it is very hot to see a guy in a skirt or a guy where, I mean, no one will be able to see this, but like I have a uh, purple uh, nail polish right now. And to, to, to really think that there can be sexiness in that. And so that we're not just left with the only things we find attractive are markers of masculinity and of men who maybe would not be very kind to us and have been actually bullying us and actually calling us uh, slurs and actually, mm-hmm. you know, pummeling us to to death um, for decades, if not centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I I want to go back to Almodovar because I think it's linked mm-hmm. to kind of what we were just talking about because um, I loved your chapter about Almodovar, obviously, because I love him and I know you love him too. And especially kind of what you talked about with Antonio Banderas. And when I think about Almodovar, like I came to him later in life, like I wasn't when I was, you know, a teenager, when I was like, you know, desiring men for the first time or whatever, not even a teenager, probably before that. I wasn't watching Almodovar <laughs> movies in Khartoum, so because they weren't available, I haven't even heard of him. So I watched his movies when I was an adult. And so um, I never associated with him with desire, I associated him with like color and fantasy and this world of like, that opened to me like, oh my God, somebody maybe thinks a little bit um, the way that I do. Um, but when I think about the images of, in his movies that I desire, I go back to Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Mm-hmm. Um, and Antonio, mm-hmm. which, which is not the movie that you, you discuss in your book, but, but that's the movie that I was like, oh my God, Antonio Banderas is so hot and sexy. And it's like, but he is, it, he literally does that. He kidnaps this woman, ties her up for the entirety of the film. And he is an example of the brute, you know, something that started with Marlon Brando. And there's so many examples of it. And these are the type of men that we love, or at least, you know, I don't want to talk for all um, (laughs) gay men, but I would say a lot of us do. Um, And so I wanted to talk about, I wanted to ask you to sort of like talk about like that dichotomy between shame and desire, because I desire him so much, but at the same time, I am like, 
even now just to you know admitting that to just the two of you and uh, I don't know how many mm-hmm. people will listen to this. <laughs> I'm just like I'm cringing a little bit <laughs> and I but I think it's fine I mean and I do the same thing in the book I was like you know I for me it's law of desire and it but it's sort of the same thing he in all of these early films he's playing these like brutes they're violent they're aggressive they don't take no for an answer quite literally yeah. especially in tie me up yeah. tie me down um and so this is a both the kind of man that if we were to meet on the streets um you would not want to get on their bad side but also they're kind of really hot and yeah i think i you know was thinking of stanley kowalski is sort of a perfect example as well like mm-hmm. is a character that i think we fetishize to the point where you forget what who the character is right and i think that a lot of it has to do with charisma a lot of it has to do with star power i think like there are ways of turning this is why i I would be fascinated to see what Mescal did with Stanley Kowalski on stage. Mm, um, yeah. Marlo, it, it's a very different version than a Marlon Brando. Uh, I don't think Mescal is sort of this hunky heartthrob. Right? And even like looking at the pictures, like the kind of haircut that he has, it was like, yeah. oh, they're really like trying to undercut. They're kind of, they were trying to bring out like sort of a seediness. Um, yeah, I would have believed him more in the Carl Molden role for... Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. You're... you're but- it's okay, Paul Vizcal fans. We're fine. Don't worry. We do love him. Uh, he's lovely in After Sun. Go watch After Sun. Um, but 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 I but I do think that's a, that that sort of undergirdness of of shame and desire, which is mm-hmm. so I think can be central to um, queer coming into her queerness, uh, that that it's hard to sort of disentangle them. And mm-hmm. I in in some ways I'm actually kind of curious to hear more about like younger folks who are coming of age in, in a time when they when we do have a lot more figures and a lot more uh, sort of people that they can turn to um so what i did in the book is say okay i do find banderas very very hot and i find him very very hot in these characters that are terrifying and that are doing horrible things to themselves and to the women around them and that almodovar really wants us to have a very complicated relationship and i think that's where i ended up i was like oh the movies are never letting them scot-free um Mm. and the movies are always complicating that and then also if you look at the um arc of Almodovar and Banderas together, like the fact that they arrive at something like Pain and Glory, which is trying to reshape that image and that Almodovar is sort of like reflecting back and then being like, oh, what is my image making? What has it done to like an actor to Antonio? And what can I gift him now to give us Mm -hmm. this sort of tender, vulnerable, openly queer uh, character who he wasn't able to, he wasn't really allowed to do in those early films. I think that also give me an inkling of how far we've come. Um, so that even though Almodovar was really trying to dissect this macho Spanish man and in making him an object of our desire to sort of defang him, mm-hmm. to then over the decades, he's now then trying to do something else. So that's why I'm also really curious to see what he's doing with this like new short Western, because mm-hmm. he's clearly he's constantly been interested in a sort of defanging and sort of decoupling aggression and desire, but by putting us in very uncomfortable situations where mm-hmm. we can't hide from those feelings and say like, yeah. okay, but then what does those feelings mean? And what can they tell us about us? Which is again, what great art does. It's not instructive. It's not didactic. It actually, yeah. it, it's in the discomfort that you're like, okay, this is, this is bringing something up. So let me interrogate that. Yeah. And it's funny, like, you know, I, I mentioned shame and desire, but I think Almodovar to me, there is never shame in his films. You might feel it, mm. but he's never like showing it or he, it's never, I think, the thing that he wants you to feel, um, which is what I think makes his movies amazing. Um, 
Um, so I wanted to ask you something since we're talking about all this sort of like brutal and shame and all of these things. So <laughs> these fun um, things, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, and desire, and you know, um, so when I think, you know, as I, as someone who for a couple of years had a, a podcast about Kate Blanchett, and I got mm-hmm. to interact with the fandom um, of hers, one of the things that always caught my mind is that all these young women who love Kate Blanchett and desire her in this sort of like sometimes violent way like I think the yes I think the 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 New Yorker <laughs> famous um uh essay where you know they coined the phrase you know um step on my throat Kate Blanchett which is which we've seen <laughs> a million variations of that online um of you know desiring for all these Yes, Kate, but also a lot of other middle-aged um, stars. Rachel Weisz, for instance. Yes, exactly. Spit on me, Rachel, yeah. Yeah. What is that? The reductress headline is like, woman clutching mug, silently thinking about getting railed by <laughs> Rachel Weisz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this strikes me as maybe too violent. And I know in the culture, <laughs> we think of men as violent now. And, you know, with all what's happening in the culture the last few years, with Me Too and all of that, we are more aware of violence in relationships. So do you find that there is, since you wrote about male desire, is there a male equivalent for Step on My Throat, Kate Blanchett, or is it just too violent? I, well, one of the things that I find fascinating about that kind of discourse around Rachel, about Kate, um, is issues of agency and consent, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think I think that's where the difference lies. I don't think, I don't know if there's an equivalent because I think with masculinity or with male figures, it's already sort of embedded. Like we would expect Stanley Kowalski to um, treat us badly. <laughs> um, yeah. But that yeah. would always come as a surprise or that would always be something that they do to us. Whereas in these moments of like, I want Rachel to spit on me or I want Kate um, to choke me or to step on my neck there's consent to it and that and I think that's what's sort of transgressive and that like we tend to think of those violent moments as um someone doing something to us but the fact that we'd be asking them to do it Mm. uh is is the queerness and I I think that would be sort of the flip side of sort of the male gaze uh, and someone should write that book because I do think there is something very fascinating happening and about that sort of like dom butch dominatrix kind of way from figures who, you know, when you think about their greatest roles, it's, it's not like Rachel Weiss has been like creating these characters or like that even Kate has a filmography full of, you know, brute women. Yeah. Um, if anything, if you look at her queer characters, they're sort of in, in, in there's a very different kind of Kate out there. So you're sort of creating yeah. this image of, of Kate to sort of do something to you. Um, there, There's probably an entire book to be written about uh, sort of what, what these fans get out of these um violent consensual I think there's also it seems like there's kind of like a one-upsmanship with it too right it's like <laughs> once we've established <laughs> yeah. step on my neck then it's like rip me open then it's like like <laughs> some like hit me with a car like it becomes an escalating joke about like how badly you want you want someone to destroy your body <laughs> <laughs> Um, which I think is very funny and also very queer, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And we're not shaming anybody's kink. If that's what you're into, please, by all means, be into it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, um, I want to ask you kind of about like, you were talking about how Almodovar kind of changes 
how he's viewed things over time and kind of how we engage with him now might be different than what he was trying to say 20 years ago. Um, I mean, when you think about when you were growing up and the kinds of things that you were observing and um, absorbing as a young queer person, uh, like, are there things that you observe about what's happening now in culture that really stick in your brain that kind of make you think about how younger people are experiencing what queer culture is like today? Um, like, do you have any thoughts about like pros or cons and the way that things have progressed, I guess? Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of, there are pangs of jealousy sometimes that I feel uh, in that, you know, one of the things about writing this book and even talking about this book and now talking with people about it, I was like, oh, there's a there's way in which this this book can feel like a very sad project in the sense of like, oh, I had nothing. So I had to resort to the screen and I had to resort to these characters and these characters that look nothing like me, felt nothing like me, and that I, I needed to sort of excavate queer meanings out of them, which took a lot of work, which is very exhausting. Um, and there is a kind of jealousy sometimes to, you know, what would it have meant to grow up and have as much as we may quibble with kind of representation that we have now, but that, that there's such a plethora of stories and filmmakers and out actors and out artists um, that are really moving the culture forward. I, you know, a few weeks, uh, last week when I, when I did a, an event here in LA, they, uh, they asked me, you know, do I find seminal pieces of pop culture now? Like, do I, do I encounter things that shape me in the same way that things shaped me back then? And the first thing that came to mind was Call Me By Your Name. Mm. And the reason that it shaped me was it, because it made me nostalgic for a teenage hood that I didn't have. Mm. Um, and I then wondered, and I've been wondering ever since, like, what would it mean as a teenage kid to watch Call Me By Your Name now? Or to watch, um, you know, any any of these, you know, watching something like Fire Island or watching uh, even Almodovar, right? Like Mortadis is like, I also came to Almodovar late. Um, one of my friends in college will continue, look, I, no matter how often we talk or how, he will always point to the fact that I, as a 19 year old who had grown up in Colombia, did not know Pedro Almodovar was gay. I knew, oh, I knew, I knew, I knew of his films because all of <laughs> my mother had been like this huge thing and yeah, yeah, Women yeah. on the Bridge of Nervous mm -hmm. Breakdown. And, but he was like, oh, he's gay. And I was like, I, what are you talking about? And he was like, how are you a 19 year old queer person? <laughs> but it, but it's, it's a thing like you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So like, I do sometimes wonder, and I think I say this in the book, like what would it have meant to discover Almodovar earlier? Um, yeah. Cause it's, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> That's so true. Well, yeah. I, I, even my friends, like, I don't really listen to this kind of music. <laughs> um, like one of my friends was at a boy or not boy genius um, King princess concert. Oh, not that long ago and she was like i i a felt old because everyone there was like gen well, z yeah. but yeah exactly <laughs> and then but then she was like i was also extremely jealous of them because i just was wondering what it would have been like it's the exact same sentiment just looking around yeah. and seeing these kids have this experience that like we just never got at all yeah um so I want to just follow up on this question and sort of maybe like dig a little deeper and go a little specific. So if in the 50s, the male desire was Marlon Brando in Streetcar, in the 80s, it was Richard Gere in American Gigolo or an officer and a gentleman. Um, I don't know who the 90s would be, probably Ricky Martin, which you write about in the book. 
Um, who is it today? Is it Timothy Chalamet? Is it that emo crying boy at the end of Call Me By Your Name? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's a there's an argument to be made that I think at the, at the turn of the century and for sort of the last two decades where we've had, it's actually, I would point to the Chris's and the MCU as sort mm -hmm. of the model of masculinity, which is both ripped and beautiful and, you know, 0% body fat and it's also all for show, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it is the they never have of, sex. CGI, they have CGI string. <laughs> exactly, and so neutered. Uh, and also, all I keep thinking is like, these are superheroes. They don't need to have muscles. Like they have superpowers. Like why are exactly. they? But yeah. it's because. But, but I do think there's been a shift, and I do think there's a reason why we're talking about Paul Mescal, and I think there's a reason why we're talking about Timothy Chalamet. Um, uh, right, I think in the tw 2017, 2018, uh, the New York Times had this article about the age of the twink, how we were mm. entering this sort of like <laughs> new era, which I loved and thinking, because then I was like, yes, our time has come. And then of course, I'm no longer a twink. And, and, so, but, but, and that, ship had, that ship had sailed a long time ago. Um, but I do think it it speaks to a, a turn. And I do think it speaks to a kind of new way of thinking about um, masculinity and then maybe that we've sort of chipped away a little bit about it in terms of aggression and violence. Um, and that we are seeing, again, that very emotional uh, young boy in front of a fireplace, um, sort of crying at the end of, at the end of Call Me. Um, that's my very positive and optimistic thinking. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, one of our biggest stars still, you know, if we think of something like the Fast Furious franchise and we think of The Rock and we think of Vin Diesel, like we still have these sort of like, sort of, you know, hyper masculine mm -hmm. and sort of hyper um, muscly sort of men leading the leading the charge. Um, but the gays are never into them. Like, I don't know anybody who wants to fuck Vin Diesel. Do you? Well, but Jason, <laughs> but Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa, sure. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But I was trying to think of like who else right now is. I mean, I, we think of someone like Mike Face, Lucas Hedges, both yeah. starring in Broke Bad Mountain, which yeah. sort of brings us full circle. Um, but th there is a, I think there's a place for them that I think does feel new and that I'm curious what will what will happen. It's funny that you mentioned Richard Gere because one of the chapters that I didn't get to write was about um, American Gigolo because I do think it's a, it's, you can't really talk about you know, masculine beauty on screen without sort of touching yeah. gear. I think it's probably the hottest any man has ever looked in American cinema, at least in American <laughs> cinema. Yeah. I think it's yeah. interesting bringing it back to that uh, Twitter debate that was happening not too long ago about Pacino versus Nero. Versus Nero. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. it's sort of like, I mean, if you think about the pinnacle of masculinity today, they aren't the people you think of even at their primes. You know what I mean? Like there was a very different definition in the 70s that I feel like is now so hyperbolic, yeah. the definition of masculinity that comes from like the 80s or something. Yeah. And I think that, and this is the thing about thinking about sometimes we think of masculinity as a sort of static thing and that it's always mm -hmm. been the same. And and as soon as we start doing this conversation, it's like, oh no, like there was a point where like Dustin Hoffman was like the actor and the sort of uh, star. And that's very different than like Tom Cruise. And that is very different than Antonio Banderas. And that is very different mm -hmm. than Timothy Chalamet. And, mm -hmm. very, and, and I think one of the things that I wanted the book to do is like, oh yes, this is site specific and this is cultural and this shifts and it can shift on a dime. And I think those shifts actually tells us more about the fact that masculinity is very pliable and it is very flexible uh, and is not monolithic, which is often how we're thought 
like we're taught to think about it. And so I was like, no, how about we actually think of the way it's very pliable and we can move it. And if we can move it and we can shape it, then we can also nudge it into more interesting places. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, Chalamet, you know, Twink King um, has been, has been one of those pivots lately. Yeah. Yes. Um, But Robert De Niro or Al Pacino in the seventies and why? (laughs) I, to me, this feels so obvious. De Niro. I agree. Why? I tell, tell me I'm why. I'm a sole Pacino voter here. The Pac- I, I, know. I don't. I mean, to me, I feel it like I feels... shouldn't even get to vote, though, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, but, but again, we both came to both of them late, right? So yes. I think it's yes. also been very colored by, you know, when I think of Pacino, I think of like Scarface and he's screaming or Ooh, like yeah. this sort of like large and light. Whereas when I think of De Niro, I there's I'm, I don't know. I also did just watch that movie that he just did with uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, and then I'm like, I'm losing all respect for you. Um, <laughs> but, but to me, he was just he's just hotter. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I agree, and I think if you want to understand De Niro's sex appeal, it is not um, his movies with Scorsese. Oh, it yeah. is not the famous ones. Go watch that movie from 1984, which I watched just a few years ago called Falling in Love. It's a small romantic film he did with Meryl Streep where they play two suburban married people who kind of meet on the train from Connecticut to New York and fall in love. And wow. he is so wonderful in that film. He's literally playing a romantic lead. And I watched that film and I was just like, he is so hot and so gorgeous in that film. And you're like, yeah, Meryl Streep would leave her husband for him. Of course she would. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Manuel, we could talk to you all day. This has been so fun. Um, uh, But since we usually at this point in the podcast, we turn it over to Betty Davis and her very famous Mm -hmm. line. Take it away, Betty. What a dump. This week, we are going for pride. We're going to sort of inverse that. And instead of dumping on a cultural thing or something in the news or what we usually do, let's be grateful for something, something queer. So my question to you is, what is something um, queer in the culture lately that you've read or seen um, that you want to tell our listeners about? Yeah, so I've been trying to read more since apparently I'm an author now and this is what authors do and it's a return to my um, academic life. Uh, And I'm doing a little bit of research for my next book. And one of the things that I've been reading and really enjoying is this book called Boy Slut, (laughs) Mm. which is described as a memoir and a manifesto. Um, uh, And it's sort of about opening up our notions of what sexuality can look like and the kinds of sexual practices about uh, you know openness and consensual non-monogamy and um, about how to learn how to be and learn to be okay with being a boy slut um, oh. which again thinking about breaking up and opening up sort of labels and uh, I just find it very fascinating it's very frank very open um, they're a sex columnist and they're clearly they're very comfortable talking about themselves and about their <laughs> memoir. Uh, so in, in, a, in a different way, it's sort of very emboldening uh, to see someone so reveal themselves on their own sexual history for our own um, entertainment, but also instruction. So, yeah. Good recommendation. Um, Izzy, but what about you? Uh, yesterday I saw Blue Jean, which is directed by Georgia Oakley. Um, I think came out in the UK earlier this year, but it's basically a film about um, 
uh, gym teacher in Newcastle in the 1980s who is a lesbian and is basically just caught in the crossfires of all of these different events that make her extremely paranoid about her sexuality and the fact that she could very easily be fired for her sexuality were she to be outed. Um, and this all kind of culminates when she sees one of her students at a gay bar. Um, and it was just a really beautiful movie. I felt like it painted such a complex portrait of, of that time and the kind of masks that people have to wear to get through the day with different audiences and how they behave themselves, um, when they feel like they're being monitored all of the time. Um, and how that can encourage people to make very logically mm. bad decisions, but uh, and how they th deal with themselves for making those bad decisions just to preserve their own safety. Um, so yeah, it's a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out if it's anywhere near you. Yeah. Um, so this is the movie that's out now. I'm going to recommend a movie that's coming out in about a month and a half or so, but I've just seen it and I can't stop thinking about it. Um, and this is Julio Torres's Problemista. So remember when Faye Dunaway had that scandal a few years ago where she called her assistant some gay yeah. slur? I, <laughs> yes, I think Julio Torres took that sort of thing as a springboard and wrote this movie about an immigrant from El Salvador who comes to America and then to maintain their status and to live here has to become an assistant to this boss from hell who is abusing him left and right. Um, played by? Played Tilda Swinton. Played by Tilda Swinton. So it's another gay icon. Isabella Rossellini is the narrator. So another um, women the gays adore. Catalina Savidra, who, if you know from The Maid, is a wonderful actor and should be a bigger gay icon, plays <laughs> his mother. Um, it's very queer. It's very gay. Julio Torres in his amazing new voice. I think it's um, this movie comes out, I think, the first week of August. I can't wait for it to come out so I can talk to more people about it. But be on the lookout. I think it's a fantastic film. Very, very funny and very, very queer. Excited. excited. The trailer yeah. was so good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and this brings us to the end of our show, Manuel. This has been such a pleasure. It was so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, uh, before we go, tell our listeners where they, can, where they can find you and your work and this amazing book. Sure. Uh, so if you want to follow me, uh, well, first of all, thank you both for having me. This has been fabulous. I, this, this is a perfect time to, I, I, I love talking to people and talking to smart people and talking to smart people about queer things, queer, smart things. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the Manuel and my website is mbetancourt.com. Um, and you can find the male gaze wherever books are sold, but I'm going to plug uh, shopqueer.co, which is a queer owned uh, online bookstore um, that you can um, buy the book directly. Uh, but if you want to go to your local indie bookstore, um, more power to you. I think there's uh, there's value in supporting those kinds of businesses right now. And yeah, that's, that's sort of, that's my self promo for today. Uh, I just want to say, Thank you for being here. We both loved having you. Um, and yeah, you can find me at BK Rewind on Twitter, BK underscore Rewind on Instagram. And the show at I Am Picture Show on both Instagram and Twitter. 
Yes. And you can find me on Twitter at me underscore says and on Instagram at mortada underscore e. And maybe I should just make them the same, but I'm not gonna. Uh, <laughs> We're all taken now. That's the problem. Yeah. And you can read my writing at the AV Club and Variety. And this week I have two articles on Wes Anderson at the AV Club. So um, if you are a fan and if you like Asteroid City, go read my writing on that film. And until next time, thank you for listening.